when the chips are down, it's, it's a different ball game when it's your kid and when it's your neighbor's kid. Sure. I mean, I, I think, though, that this is the same argument that's been used against same-sex parents adopting. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah you're right. No, no, but, what, but what I hear you saying is, is that in some ways, some of these different ways of doing relationships mm-hmm. force people to be more conscious about developing that kind of ability. Exactly. Yeah. Listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I am so happy to be with you right now in this medium. Rather than out in real time in the real world of Brett Kavanaugh and Donald Trump and Supreme Court nominations and sexual abuse allegations and the mess we are in right now. And I am not going to say a great deal about all of this, except that it's discouraging and strange. Strange. It's funny because I got to tell you, I think I would feel better if when accused, Kavanaugh had said, you know what? I got drunk a bunch when I was in high school and college and a lot of times I was blackout drunk. I don't know what I did. If I did any of that stuff, I am so sorry. I'm not that guy anymore. I don't drink anymore that way. I don't, I I don't think that way about women. I, I, I don't, if that was me, I'm sorry. I'm not even sure. I, I think that would be much better for me than, than, than what's, what's happening. These kind of like, I guarantee you that didn't happen because that makes no sense. Even if you were misunderstood, something happened. People don't just show up. Regular people, people with families and lives just don't show up this way and make these kinds of allegations. Something is wrong and it's, 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 it's difficult. And, you know, the funny thing is, you know, I said, like, I would feel better if he would just own it. And yet then I I looked at Marty the other day and I said, so if it came out that I had raped somebody or tried to rape somebody when I was 17 years old, if you knew that now, would it change the way you feel about me? And she said, yeah, I, I think it would. And I go, like, of course it would. Of course it would. And, and, and might it change the way I feel about cases in which somebody's accused of sexual misconduct? I, it probably would. I'd probably be a little bit more understanding, a little bit more forgiving. Maybe then I ought to be if I was the Supreme Court justice. All I know is it's, it's just so discouraging when regardless of what happens, the president of the United States is is insensitive and willfully ignorant enough to say, listen, if something that terrible happened back then, I'm sure she would have reported it to the police. I mean, you want to talk about a trauma uninformed person. Yeah, you you know I'm not a big politics guy, even though I'm sure 
virtually everybody listening to this podcast can guess my politics. But I'm trying to make evergreen episodes that can be listened to years later with no, no diminishment of listener enjoyment. But today I'm just in that space where I'm glad to be here. Glad to be having a conversation different from that one. Before we get on with the podcast, I want to thank Peter Tubbs, who has supported this podcast in the past at one level. And, and this almost never happens where somebody who's been supporting the podcast for five bucks a month writes and says, you know what, I'm going to change my pledge up to $20 a month. I'm going to become one of the big time supporters, which to me, that is big time support. And I, all I can say is thank you, Peter. I mean, it's, it's actually doubly encouraging because you got in there once and then you got in there again. And yeah, thank you. I, I, I hope that the podcast is four times better as a result. Now then, on today's episode, I'm sharing with you a conversation I had with Dedeker Winston, who is a relationship coach who offers one-on-one guidance for people who are polyamorous or otherwise non-monogamous or interested in exploring such possibilities. And you say, wait, how can she offer one-on-one guidance unless she is polyamorous, which of course she is. She's kind of famously polyamorous because in addition to being a coach, she is the author of a book called A Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory. And she is the host of the Multiamory podcast, which explores the future of ethical, non-toxic relationships in which everyone maintains their individual agency. And you say, Bart, the way you're describing these things makes it sound like you don't know what you're talking about. And I kind of don't. I mean, I've read books about polyamory and, and, and open marriages, and I've got a number of friends. I mean, when you get into kind of the secular community, you're going to come across people who have not only thrown off their religious convictions, but have also thrown off some of their traditional behaviors. And so I've met people who are in open marriages and who are polyamorous and all this stuff, And I've had conversations with them around it, but never have I dug in like I dug in with Dedeker. And I got to tell you, I mean, I started this conversation when, when I, when we invited her on the show, John sort of said to me, Hey, you got to talk about this stuff at some point. People are interested. People ask questions. And my plan was to get Dedeker on the show and ask her really tough, really practical questions, not moral questions. I have no moral problem with this stuff. I know, I know monogamy is a social construct. And, uh, I was just like, I, my, my thing is, I don't know if it really would work in real life, especially in the society as we've got it structured. And so I was going to ask her all these tough, practical questions. And my expectation was that she would wilt under the pressure. She wouldn't be able to answer them. And I would come away sort of vindicated in my the way I've always done things is, is the way to do things. And Marty and I are right in staying married the way we are. But it didn't work out that way at all. Um, I mean, I enjoyed the conversation. And, and, and I, I think in some ways, I, I don't know. I mean, you'll, you'll be the judge as you listen to the conversation, whether it changes my mind. I know it changed my heart. 
and uh, and it might change yours too. I mean, this is not some thoughtless libertine. This is a kind, loving, post-Christian, I got to tell you, grew up in the church kind of person who's just gone in a different direction than I have and really made me think I'm a judgmental jerk at some points and at other points made me think I, I, I need to explore more. And so we'll see what it makes you think. And I'll catch you on the other side. And, and oh, you know what? Before we get to the show, on the other side, I have a surprise waiting for you. And you say, oh, I know it'll be a Robert Ingersoll quote, but it won't be. Don't miss it. Now, here's me and Dedeker Winston chopping it up about all things relationship. Hey, Dedeker, am I saying that correctly? Yes, 100%. You got it on the first try. Are you are you an LA person right now? Uh, right now, yes. I just got back in from Tokyo about two days ago, though. What were you doing in Tokyo? Um, I spend anywhere from three months to about half the year living in Tokyo, actually, or in some part of Japan. I end up going back and forth between Japan and the West Coast quite frequently. Really? Yeah, you, yeah. Like, so I, I speak the language. I'm not I'm not fluent, but I, I did get like certifi- certified for translation at the end of last year. Um, so yeah, so I go back pretty frequently. Um, and I also I have a partner of mine who is living in Singapore as well. So I end up going to, you know, Southeast Asia quite a bit as well to see him. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. Listen, I, I, I don't know if you know anything about me anything about my podcast and there's no reason you should there's no reason (laughs) oh well so i uh yeah john sent over a few like uh you know a couple interviews with you that i read and then i listened yesterday i listened to an episode of the podcast um i just kind of scrolled through and picked what would be interesting to me and i listened to um the death salon episode actually oh yeah oh gosh loved it so much i mean i'm also i'm a weirdo who's also interested in in the death positive movement and has been for a long time and so it was totally up my alley and and yeah, such a great conversation. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. You know, I spent most of my life as an evangelical Christian. Yeah. And I know yeah. you grew up in that world. I did. Yeah. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern California in a really small little town, um, about two hours north of Sacramento. That's probably the closest large city that people would know. Um, yeah. And I actually, I grew up also, uh, even outside of that town, like half an hour outside of a tiny little town, like in the woods at the end of a dirt road. So in an extremely, extremely rural environment. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I grew up with these this kind of weird influence of like my mother. I, I was raised by a single mother for the most part. Um, my mother who even to this day is very much a hippie. She was very new age, like very into essential oils and stuff like that. But she did bring my sister and I to the Nazarene church every single Sunday. And, ah, um, the Nazarenes. Y- yes. So I'm Nazarene in origin. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so it's kind of funny because actually, you know, my mom remarried when I was about 10 or 11 to a very fundamentalist Christian man that she'd met in the church. And that definitely, you know, took the level of evangelical Christianity in my life and turned it up to 11, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it definitely, you know, the influence of evangelism hit me at this really vulnerable time, you know, right on the cusp of puberty, essentially. And uh, 
And yeah, I, I didn't really start kind of divesting myself of it until I was in college. Um, did you buy, around I mean, that, did you yes? buy, like when you're 10 years old and mom marries hyper Christian man, mm -hmm. did you like, did you buy into it or was it that classic movie where like the crazy stepfather comes home and you're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, what are we doing? Like, did you find the Nazarene church and the Christian influence around you? Did you go like, yeah, this is a warm, friendly place. I want to be a part of this. You know, when I was when I was little, because I think we started going to church when I was about six or seven. When I was little, you know, not only was I going to church, but I was also going to Christian school. And and yes, you know, I think I had that sense of like this is community. And even now, you know, even as an adult looking back on it, when I think about those earlier years, learning to feel grateful for having that sense of community growing up. Um, you know, so there's a part that feels like warm and safe and fuzzy, but then there's also a part of it, of course, as I got older and when mom remarried of like really, really trying to buy into it, <laughs> like trying so hard to buy into it. And as I got older and older, it getting harder and harder and harder. I think especially as I started seeing more of the hypocrisy and I started seeing more of the failings of human beings trying to impose a certain set of dogmatic beliefs upon other human beings. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely been an interesting journey. You know, I would say, gosh, I would say I probably stopped identifying as a Christian around 17, 18 or so. And so it's been, you know, over 10 years at least. And uh, it's it's still a journey of of working through, like, what are the messages that I received growing up? And what is still valuable to me and what isn't and how much was I shaped and formed in the way that I think about the world and about sex and about relationships. And and I feel like the work that I do now, which is not necessarily just about polyamory, I like to think that like the work that I do now is more about that, is more about exploring like what are the messages that we receive about sex and relationships, whether that was from a religious background or not, you know, um, and how is that influencing us now and how is that potentially preventing us from actually having the kind of relationships and sex that we want to have? Yeah. Did you receive like like what's funny is like when you say I grew up in Northern California in a Nazarene church, like I can core, like I have enough of a Christian background that like I can almost imagine some of the messages that you were sent as a 12 year old mm, mm. or oh, as I'm a sure. 15 year old. Like, I don't know if you were going to youth group. Um, oh yeah. But, oh, definitely. you know, all the, like, like, and, and I, like, I know all those messages about like, you don't want to be damaged goods um, yes. and, you know, say like, and lusting in your heart being, you know, almost equally bad as actually doing mm, any of the stuff. Yes. Like, yes. Now, now I'm going to, this is going to sound terrible, but like a brief survey of your online presence leads mm. me to believe that in the world of sort of sexual energy or libido or like sexual interest, your, your, your engine's pretty, pretty high. Well, I mean, I'll put it this way. I, I, when I was young, I signed two of those, you know, pledges that said I wouldn't have sex until marriage. And so I'm in breach of contract at least <laughs> twice over for sure. But, but like, but like, do you, do you, like I meet people like, like, and in my Christian journey, I met a lot of people who would talk to me about celibacy and, and that were in, mm. in they, you know, sometimes they were obviously gay men yeah, who had yes. decided to walk with Jesus and, but one of the things that they all had in common was the ones that were like okay with it 
had really low libidos. Like their 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 motors mm. were really running at low. So it wasn't a huge sacrifice for them to step away from from sexual expression. Right. They weren't going to go yeah. that far that way anyway. And then there are other people who for whom sexuality was much more central to like Mm, who they mm -hmm. are like and I, I think I would put myself in that category where like it was really oh, important yeah. to me right from the start yes and like I'm but and that's what I meant like when I looked at your stuff online I was like nobody is this curious and interested and mm. conversing around sexuality if when they were 15 they probably also weren't pretty interested in sexuality Right. Well, it's funny that you say that because I actually, I feel like the circles that I run in now, you know, in these communities that are very sex positive and kink positive um, and communities where it is very encouraged for you to be very open and exploratory with your sexuality, like in the circles that I run in now, I think comparatively, I feel like I am very <laughs> vanilla and have a very low libido and like not much of an interest in sex right, right, um, right. compared to most of the people that I know. But yes, compared to, you know, the, the community that I grew, the grew up in. Or the Nazarene church. Yes. yes, exactly. Exactly. Compared to the Nazarene church, I'm definitely harlot of the week, right, you know, right. um, but I, I don't know. I think it's so interesting because, yes, I got all those messages growing up about, you know, wait until marriage and especially the specific message targeted at me as a young girl that, you know, I need to be modest in order to protect the boys around me from being tempted. And um, and did you did you, know, you get a message that like like this is the one that I always think is weird is like I got a message growing up that sex was something that guys wanted, boys wanted. And the mm -hmm. girls sort of traded in, but like they didn't want it for yes. its own sake. They used it to get intimacy or they or or to get other things. But like the idea that a woman would really enjoy sex yes. was the message I felt like that the women in our youth group were getting was like that's like there's something wrong with you if you really like it. Yes, yes. And I mean, most definitely, because I remember always that once you reach that particular age in youth group or Sunday school, you know, kind of the tween, early teen years, for at least a portion of the year, they would split up the girls and the boys. And the girls class, I don't remember what the girls class was called, but it was very much focused on being pure yeah. on... Was it called How to Say you know, No? Attracting... Uh, <laughs> yes, definitely some stuff on how to say no on, on like a lot of emphasis on like how to attract like the perfect man of God or like what qualities to look for in a man of God and what qualities you need in yourself in order to attract that man or be worthy right. of that kind of man. And then I remember the boys, their, their class was always called, um, uh, every young man's battle, which was essentially about, <laughs> I guess, not masturbating. I think it was about like not looking at porn and not masturbating. Oh, it's a huge you know? issue. Um, Absolutely. But this is so funny is that in that class, I remember so distinctly one, only one woman who taught me, only one woman ever actually talking about sex in a positive way. Um, and she was a younger woman. She was married to one of the youth pastors. And, uh, and I just, it struck me so much because she said one day she was, you know, she was kind of explaining how, you know, it is worth it to wait for sex, to wait to have that connection with your husband. And I, I always remember that she ended it by saying, and it's worth it because sex is really fun. And that was the first time in my life, especially in that context, in a church context, that like anyone had ever said sex is fun. <laughs> like sex is good and sex is pleasurable and especially for a woman to say that and i remember i think being 14 and 15 at the time and just having my mind blown that 
she would say such a thing in church, which is really such a relatively tame thing to just say, hey, you know, wait till marriage to have sex because it's fun. Um, but that was the context that I grew up in where there was just such an absence of anything even remotely resembling sex positivity or body positivity at that time. And so so it sounds like you you were rest like those messages were around you and you were you I don't know the way what there's like you considered them like they were not you didn't think like that's ridiculous oh, sure. like I can't believe anyone yeah. but like it, it doesn't sound like on the other hand that you took them uncritically it sounds like you were really trying to figure out like what am I going to do with all this stuff well, sure. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, on the one hand, like you ask an 11 year old to pledge not to have sex till you're married and you're 11. And so you're like, yeah, sex. No, no way. Hate sex, nice. <laughs> you know, because you have no idea. Um, sure. I'll sign a pledge and do what everyone else is doing. But then honestly, I think there was a big influence in my life at that time. Um, and that I actually I feel very fortunate in that I had an older sister who was quite a bit older than me. She was eight years older than me. Um, and so when I was early teens and in the middle of my high school years, she was in college. And she, even though my sister still to this day, she identifies as Christian. I don't, I wouldn't call her evangelical by any means, but still um, Christian. But she at that time was such an influence on me because I kind of felt like she smuggled to me all of this like secular literature that I wasn't allowed to read at home that she was reading in her college literature classes. Um, and she would show me movies, like movies that had God forbid, drag queens in them and gay people in them and that were very humanizing towards gay people and drag queens and prostitutes and, and things like that. And so it, I think that definitely helped me to not just be in this little vacuum bubble where these messages are completely not questioned um, and helped me to kind of have this secret influence that I think my parents weren't quite aware was happening at the time to see, oh, there's this whole other way that the world outside of the church looks at sex and relationships. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the way the world looks at them is like 100% right and the church is 100% wrong, but just that there's different viewpoints. And I think for me, being able to see just the fact that there's many different viewpoints, that was definitely instrumental in helping the veneer start to crack, I think. And then, and then it sounds like by the time you were 18, was that veneer completely cracked? Yeah, I mean, a number of things came to a head. I mean, I moved out of the house pretty early when I was 17 because I started college early as well. Um, yeah, I, I moved out of the house. I started going to college around the same time my parents divorced or my, you know, my mom divorced my stepdad. Um, and uh, and so that definitely kind of helped with things, kind of the puzzle kind of starting to fall apart. And, uh, uh -huh. and I, you know, I stopped going to church regularly. And, and it's funny because I feel like I saw so many of my peers who had been raised in the evangelical church that as soon as they went to college, and especially if they went to a secular college, um, I saw so many of them just go off the rails, like so many that immediately hopped into binge drinking or immediately got addicted to something or who immediately like had sex and got pregnant like like these really terrible tragic things that clearly at least what it seemed like to me was the result of being so pent up and so restricted for so many years and then finally being let loose and for me it didn't really feel that way it felt like at least in my personal experience, it felt more of like a slow transition out of and then a slow transition into kind of exploring other things that had been denied to me for so long. And I remember when I was 18 and I had sex for the first time that leading up to it, 
you know, I knew there was a part of me that knew like, okay, I'm ready to do this, even though I, I know I've signed these pledges and I know I, I've, I've been taught that I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm ready. And I know that the price of doing this for me is just, I'm going to feel guilty afterwards. Like I, I, for some reason, even before having sex, I just accepted like, okay, I'm going to feel guilty. And I just, I know that's going to happen. Um, and I know that heading in, so it's not going to surprise me. And what did surprise me after I finally had sex for the first time was that I didn't feel guilty. It was that afterwards, I remember being so struck by just the sense of like, huh, like that was neither the like horrible life destroying thing that the church told me it was going to be if I had it outside of marriage, nor was it the like mind blowing, world shattering, dimension altering, amazing, magical power that they said it would be if I had it in marriage. And I realized like, oh no, this is just like a very human thing. This is like eating. This is like going to the bathroom. This is like dancing. This is like any number of things that we do with our bodies as human beings. And that's it. And having that realization, I think, has just influenced so much of how, what I guess what I've turned into today of just kind of realizing, you know, like kind of looking at sex and relationships in the way that we relate to each other as human beings and realizing it's not, it's not an evil thing, but it's also not this amazing magical thing. It's just this human thing. Oh and gosh. that's good so, in itself, so, you know? No, you're just reminding me like back when I was in when, when I was still in, you know, because I was like this hard, like a minister guy working in the yeah. inner city and my wife and I did this whole, we had this whole journey in that. But um, at one point in that, at one point when we were, we were married, we, I th we had two kids. We were, they, they, they were little though. And mm. um, one night we watched that movie Indecent Proposal with mm, Robert Redford mm -hmm. and Demi Moore yeah. and Woody Harrelson. And, and do you know the premise of that movie? Yes, yes, yeah. I do. So afterwards, you know, we're, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, we're laying in bed, and I said to Marty, you know, the obvious question, like, you know, would you take that deal? Uh -huh. And she was like, "Of course." Uh -huh. And I was horrified. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and she was like, mm -hmm. especially like if it's Robert Redford, like he's a nice looking man, <laughs> and he seemed like a nice person. Like, of course, like, and and I still remember her saying, "It's just sex." Mm, yeah. And I had been raised and I had sort of reinforced this idea of like, oh, no, no, sex is never just sex. Right. And right. she was just like, I would eat a meatloaf for a $10,000. She's like, I would do a, <laughs> like, it's it, like, it, it, it'd be over in one night. It doesn't, it wouldn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. Like, and we could use that money to do this, that, and the other. And I mean, <laughs> right. it precipitated a huge fight. Wow. Um, and ultimately, it wasn't until probably 15 years later when I realized like that it was the beginning of me understanding that my wife was a woman with a sexual appetite hmm. that wasn't like, that wasn't exclusive to me. Like I, I had sort of thought like, oh, well we got married. So like I'm the only man she would ever want right. to have sex with. She could not right. imagine having sex with another man other than me. And it would, and it would, or if she could, it would be horrible. Yeah. And yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, she, you know, I was like, that was the first inkling I had that like, she found other men attractive and, and like that, you know, like whether she chose to go that way or not go that way, like she's an animal, mm, like with like we all are. appetites. Yeah. 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 And I, but, but yeah, so, so the idea of, of you sort of waking up that, you know, after that first experience and going like, oh, this is, this is just, right. it's just sex. Right.
Right. Um, yeah, that was probably yeah, fairly earth shattering. Definitely. I mean, it reminds me of when I was younger, um, when I was in high school, you know, when I was early high school, a freshman and, you know, I had my first boyfriend, like my first time I got a crush on someone and then we decided to be girlfriend and boyfriend, you know, even though that just means like we're going to hold hands and maybe kiss peck on the cheek or something, you know, um, right, my, right. my early explorations of quote unquote adult relationships, um, I was really mortified when like a few months into my relationship with my first boyfriend, I suddenly started getting a crush on someone else. And I was extremely confused because I was like, I'm really, I'm happy with this person. Like I still have a crush on my boyfriend. I'm still interested in him. Why am I also interested in this other person? And because, you know, my education on relationships had been all Disney movies and the church, which teaches you, you know, like if you really love someone, if that's really the person you're supposed to be with, then you literally cannot even acknowledge there's no part of you that's going to be attracted to someone else. And if it is, that means you don't really love this person. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. I, like I, I remember yeah. walking down the beach with my youth pastor mm-hmm. um, on, a, on, a, on a beach trip and this gorgeous woman in a bikini that was not there was mm. walked past us. And I was just like, you know, I was acknowledging my lust and I was going, oh no, that's not good for me. And he's like, mm. what are you talking about? And I said, oh my gosh, you, just, you, you like that woman. And he's like, you know what, Bart, when you really love your wife, you just don't see another woman. Mm. And, and like, I wasn't old enough or wise enough to just go like, bullshit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you're totally lying to me. Um, uh-huh. But so, okay. So that's a great segue for me yeah. because like, I've got you as a junior high kid. Um, having your first boyfriend and and realizing that you're capable of being interested in two boys at the same time. Fast forward to now when you are like the queen of polyamory. <laughs> oh, geez. Please don't give me that title. That's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. But like you you, you have this polyamorous podcast. Yes. Um, you write books about this stuff. Like yes. you are. Okay. So... And, and 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 I assume that you're practicing what you preach in the sense of you're in a you're in is it a a polyamorous relationship or are you in multiple polyamorous relationships at the same time? Uh, I'm in multiple relationships. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I, the easiest way to describe my life right now, just in the plainest terms, is I have my partner Jason. I have my partner Alex. Um, and that like that's literally the simplest way that I can describe it. And All right. they also have like other partners that, you know, they date and that they see occasionally as well. Um, and are any of those relationships like like I know from the open marriage conversations I've had with people that some people have like a primary relationship mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. and then and then their other relationships are either the are either or both of these relationships primary um so that's gosh this is such a topic that you've opened up here and i could talk about it for three more hours but i'm going to try not to um because the topic of hierarchy you know specifically primary secondary hierarchy is a hot topic and it has been a hot topic for a number of years now within the polyamorous non-monogamous community um because basically the way that it's kind of gone, you know, polyamory, at least as a label, hasn't really been used in the States or only, it's only really been used since the early 90s or so that it actually kind of started becoming popular to use as a term and, and a way to identify relationships. And what we saw back in the early 90s with people who were practicing polyamory is a lot of people borrowed terminology and ways of relating Uh, from swinger culture. Um, You know, swinger culture, of course, being, you know, usually it's a married couple who decide that they're going to 
I hate to use this term, it's so outdated, but it used to be called, you know, wife swapping. Um, you know, like the, these are the open marriage people that are like, you're still my wife, I'm still your husband, but like, I'm I'm going to go off for a weekend and have some fun with somebody else. Yeah, I'm going to say yes. I mean, not everyone uses the term open marriage to mean the same thing anymore. But but yes, like I think that culturally, that's what we're used to assuming an open marriage is it's something that's kind of more swingery of like, this is a sex thing. This is a fun thing. Like maybe we're together having group sex or maybe, you know, we kind of swap partners or maybe we play with another couple. But ultimately, we're emotionally monogamous. And so the polyamorous community and non-monogamous community in the early 90s, I think we're borrowing a lot of swinger models. And so there was this assumption, if you're going to practice polyamory, you need to have a primary and secondary hierarchy. Like that's the only way we can keep this organized. That's the only way we can keep this running smoothly is that like, you know, you have your one partner who is the most important and who, you know, shares the financial decisions and cohabits with you and maybe raises kids with you and maybe, maybe is married to you, maybe not. And uh, maybe even that's the only person that you can say, I love you to, you know, any number of things. And then a secondary partner comes along and, you know, the primary partner has the power to veto that secondary partner if they don't like them. And the secondary partner needs to just be happy that they kind of get whatever it is that they get, you know. So for a, a while at the beginning there, it was kind of assumed, oh, that's the way you do it. And to be totally honest, when I came to it, which was definitely not the early 90s, but <laughs> let's say um, the mid 2000s, um, uh, I assumed the same thing. I kind of thought, oh, that's the way you do it. Like it just makes sense that you have a primary partner and a secondary partner because that's what looks the closest to monogamy, right? Um, and the thing is that now, like, we're really seeing attitudes shift and change a lot. There's a lot of discussions around ethics because of, you know, questions of like, how ethical is it to be in a romantic relationship with someone, but also telling them, by the way, I'm, I can never say I love you to you. I can never introduce you to my family. We're probably not going to get to like travel together because th these are all things that I do with my primary partner. But hey, how about let's fall in love with each other or let's date each other, you know, that it really brought up these questions of like ethics and power imbalances within relationships. Um, so again, I don't want to, you know, spin out too far on this. But no, no, but there, there's a little, like, it's not a spin out for me. And like, okay. because, <laughs> right. and, and the reason, the reason is because like, you know, I'm married 30 years. Yeah. And I've raised two kids um, with my wife and, you know, and we started out as Christians mm -hmm. and then we went, we, 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 we kind of, we went on that journey together and, and we came out of it about seven, eight years ago. And, you know, now we're, we're really trying to figure out how to make the most of life on the other side of faith. Yeah. And so one of the things that was weird, like, like, you know, that indecent proposal discussion was back when we were still in the church. Right. You know, we come out of the church and we end up reading that book, Sex at Dawn. Mm -hmm. And we have another laying in bed conversation where she's like, you know, I, I sometimes feel guilty because like I had a life before we got married and, and mm. you really didn't. You, 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 you were on the straight and narrow. You were a virgin when we got married. You, she's like, sometimes I feel you have no stories to tell. You have, you know, you know. She's <laughs> uh -huh. like, marriage is like a social, it's a social construct. Like it's not necessarily, yeah. we're not like biologically wired for it that way. That was kind of the argument of sex at dawn. Right. Yeah. And so we started just talking about theorizing, you know, like, well, what would that look like? And one of the, the, the first things that came to my mind was, like, I don't have any moral problem with people sleeping with people that they're not married to or not partnered with. Or I was just like, but on a practical level, 
Mm. Like when, like raising kids, money, like getting old. Like I was just like, like I I just, I couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. And, and to be honest with you, Dedeker, I still kind of like fundamentally, like I can't see it. Mm. Like I, I can see it for younger people. I can see it for people without kids. And so, and so for me, it's, there's not a moral bone in my body that has a problem with it, but it's just like within the social construct that we've got, like within this mm-hmm. matrix mm-hmm. where money works this way and healthcare works that way and, right. you know, and, and airplanes work this way. I'm like, so if somebody came to me and said like, oh yeah, we're married. And like, we recognize that like, you know, we've been, we've been sleeping together for 50 years. Like some, you know, we've read a little bit of Esther Perel. We sort of go like, we probably need a little bit of a variety there. So like, so, you know, so we're doing some different things out there, but like everything that we're doing is meant to serve and to enhance this relationship. I go like, right. okay, that I understand. Right. That, that, that seems, um, what's the word? That seems intuitive to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Once you get away from a religious paradigm with, right. with, with a bunch of arbitrary rules, what you're talking about with with with, with Alex and Jason, mm. I, again, like I don't have a moral issue at all. I just go like, it's not. It doesn't seem intuitive to me. Hmm. Does it feel intuitive to you? At this point, it does. It's. I mean, and and I think this kind of it loops back around to to ultimately answer the question that you asked previously, which is that no, like at this point, like I don't consider one of my partners primary and the other one secondary. Like I don't have one person singled out. Like ah, oh, this is going to be the one I'm going to live with. Um, I I kind of split my time honestly. Like I live for a number of months out of the year with Jason. I live for a number of months out of the year with Alex. And I've built my life in such a way that I can do that. And for me, that does feel intuitive because it feels weird for me for two people that I'm in love with and that I love spending time with and that I want to have in my life for a long time. It feels weird to me to pick one and say, I'm going to give this all to you. And then the other one can just get what's left over. Right. And now do you that have, doesn't- do you, do, you have, do you have any presumption that you will grow old with either of these guys? Uh, define growing old with someone. Like they're there when you die. I I mean that that's hopefully a long time from now <laughs> as far as I know but but yes like when I think about the future as it were I mean first of all I, I think another thing to bear in mind is that um there's this concept called the relationship escalator. Have you have you heard of this before? No, no. What is so it? So the relationship escalator. I didn't come up with this, um, but it's the idea that baked into our culture and baked into what we're taught about relationships is the idea of this escalator. As in like in order for any relationship to be considered real or valid, it needs to be on this escalator, which is oh, like a series of going escalator to higher levels goals. of commitment. Yes. So as okay, in it okay. starts out meeting and then first date and then a couple dates and then first kiss and then first sex and then we're boyfriend and girlfriend and then we're exclusive and then we move in together and then we get married and then we have kids and then we die. And at any and, point, my uncle Joe can come and say, "What are your intentions? Like, where is this exactly, headed?" Yeah, exactly, exactly. That that conversation of where are we going? Where is this headed? Yeah. What's next? Um, you know that, and that any relationship that isn't on the escalator, or God forbid, is like on the stairs or on the ladder or going down or going up or whatever, is um, not valid at all. Is not valid, right? And so, it like when you see that concept and realize that like relationships don't have to be on the escalator. You don't have to be buying into every single step of the escalator in order for it to be real and valid. That really changes the game. And so for me, 
you know, I, I like my situation is a little bit unique in that, like, I particularly I don't have dreams of raising a family and my partners don't either. However, there are a lot of people that I know who move within my community and the circles that I move within um, who do have families who are raising kids and who are polyamorous and non-monogamous at the same time. There's actually been a huge body of research, um, particularly um, Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. She's in the, her fourth wave of data collection on this 2025 year study, qualitative study of polyamorous families um, and seeing how they function, what they struggle with, what they succeed at, what is um, you know beneficial to them being polyamorous or having multiple adults around to raise kids, what is detrimental to them, how are the kids doing? Um, and so the thing is that like people are doing this it's not just like single people floating around having a good time does that make no, sense yeah yeah because because yeah. that was that was my thing it's like i you know one of my questions like when i was reading up on you is i was like i wonder what her ultimate values are like what mm. are the things what are the ends for which everything else are means like mm, mm -hmm. you know maslow or, or you of know like, you know and i know that for for me I realize that the reason I value my marriage so highly, one reason I value my marriage so highly is because one of my ultimate values is, um, is I want to get to a certain level of intimacy with another mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's not like the, the, the relationship escalator was, was not so much like, I just need the, I need to get to that marriage thing. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it was, no, the marriage thing was at the bottom of the escalator. And the question was, how do I feel like the most level of connection with mm. another human being? Like I mm -hmm. want to be connected. I want to be known. Yeah. I want to know somebody. Right. I want, I want to have a level of security and trust. So like these things were, so for me, my marriage was a means to, to kind of that goal right that in a sense connecting was kind of the essence of being human right connecting with another human being was my best sort of and and the other the other connection was having kids yeah there seems to be some reliable data that the connection with your kids is is unique and then i was like yes. okay but like i don't want to if i'm going to try to be that connected to my kids i need to stick with their mom mm. mm -hmm. so that they never have to split time between us like you know, you know, like I just wanted to keep it all as compact as possible because yeah. I was trying to go as deep as I could get. Right. And right. I could totally imagine somebody going like, "Dude, that's not my ultimate value." Yeah. Yeah. I want adventure, or I want, um, I want, I want to experience as many different kinds of people as I can, or you know, like I, or I want independence. Right. Right. Well, I think it's you know something that I've been exploring recently and that we've explored on the podcast recently is this idea of conscious monogamy. Um, because I, you know, when I, when I do my work and, and, you know, do speaking engagements and, and writing and stuff like that, like I never want anyone to come away with the impression that my agenda is that monogamy is dead or that my agenda is that monogamy is toxic or, or things like that. But I do think that it is really important for us, at least in the realm of relationships, to start bringing some more consciousness to it. And I think you've kind of hit on it there, you know, realizing that, you know, your desire 
in getting married and having kids wasn't about accomplishing marriage and kids. It was about, I want to get really deeply intimate and connected with this person. And I think more people being able to tap into that of like what it is that they actually want and you know, that hopefully enabling them to be able to choose a relationship format that fits that for them. And maybe that is monogamy, but I think it is so important to be able to have some kind of context where people can consciously choose monogamy as opposed to ending up in it as a default, because we've been taught that's the only option. Does that make sense? Yeah. And can I just like, I totally agree with that because you know, I, I, I'm involved in so many marriages that are struggling and, 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 mm. and sometimes it's over faith issues where one partner deconverts and the other one's still in and that's really hard. And, but I also work with college students and most of my college students have no expectation that they will ever have a relationship like the one that I have with my wife. Like, they're just like, that's cool. Like, that's a unicorn, bro. Like, hmm. like people don't do that anymore. Like you're not going to have one partner and you're going to still be all excited about that 35 years yeah. in. Like that's, you know, and they're like, that's cool. Like, don't, but, they're, but they're just, they're like, it's like a superhero movie to them where they're like, yeah, it's fun to watch. But like, I don't actually expect that I will be Spider-Man. Um, right. And, and some of them, frankly, they weren't raised in such a way that they're equipped to have hmm. that kind of relationship. Like, yeah damage was done or they just didn't learn certain skills, the kind of skills that you need to stay with somebody that long. Yeah. And so I go like, I find myself thinking like, gosh, people better come up with some alternative ways of mm. being a human being and alternative ways of having sexuality and alternative ways of having love. Yes. Because this thing that we're talking about, this marriage thing, this is like the freaking black diamond slope. And hmm. hardly anybody makes it down. Right. Yes. And yes. so like, yeah, I, yeah. I can't agree with you more that like monogamy should not be the default option. It should almost yes. be like marriage is probably one of these things where we should recognize that it is incredibly unlikely to succeed. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to do. And our culture doesn't support it very well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I think that unfortunately, like we've been done a great disservice by being fed this story that it is possible to find the one person that, uh, you know, will check all the boxes and fulfill all your needs, who will act as, uh, you know, your caretaker and sometimes your parent, sometimes your personal trainer, sometimes your the business police officer partner, that keeps you in line, your business yeah. partner, your, your co-parent, um, your best friend, the person who's going to satisfy you in bed every single time you want sex. You know that, you know, the idea that it is possible to find this one person who can do all of that. And also, if you love them enough, it's worth it to to work through anything. And it's, I don't know, just in my line of work, like working with clients, like, this idea that even if we're miserable in a relationship, it's going to work out if we love them. This idea that like love or the potential that maybe this person is the one is enough to tolerate abuse or is enough to stay in a situation that's making us miserable. Um, I can't think of any other word for it, but toxic. It really. is, but the opposite of that is toxic too, in the sense oh, of sure. throwing off a relationship just because you're not fulfilled for six months. You know, like ultimately, again, but again, like it depends on your ultimate goal. Like if you if yes. you want to get close to somebody, like really close to them, if that's mm -hmm. important to you, 
to feel that kind of like buddy movie kind of closeness, you're going to mm. have to go through some shit with them. Of course, of course. I mean, I think that that a lot of it boils down to being able to tell like what's the difference between you know, personal growth that is uncomfortable as I'm growing closer to this person versus what is a boundary and what is something that like I can't tolerate. And yeah, or, I think or, unfortunately- Or, or well-placed loyalty or misplaced loyalty. Yes, exactly. And I think unfortunately, this, this is going to sound strange, but like kind of the over-romanticization of love and romantic relationships really makes that boundary quite fuzzy, I think. Because sometimes, often we don't know, is it that- I just got to power through this kind of tough spot with this person and get to the other side and then it's going to be okay and we're going to be closer and stronger because of it or is it that like I'm tolerating a shitty relationship or I'm I'm tolerating being abused or I'm abusing someone um and it becomes so hard for us to see through that fog of our cultural conditioning. So so I got a question for you. Yeah. Because I mean like are you financially independent like in the sense of like Alex and Jason, like, mm -hmm. do they have their budgets and you have your budgets? And sometimes you, like, you're not financially intertwined with these people, are you? Um, gosh, I mean, Jason and I are on a cell phone plan together. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, okay, okay. So I'll, I'll actually, I'll clarify that a little bit more. We're on a cell phone plan together. And something that does make things a little bit different is that Jason and I are in a business contract together since he's one of the co-hosts on the podcast and we're a corporation now. Um, so, so there's a financial entwinement in a business partner kind of sense on that side. Um, but you're, you're you're no more financially entwined with him than you are with the other person who co that. Like, there's three of you on that podcast. Yes. And yeah, but but yes, with with Emily, the third host of the podcast, like equally as financially right, entwined right. in a business sense with her as well. Yes. But in in the sense of like, you, you don't have kids together. No. And if you get cancer, and the podcast feels like a weird baby sometimes. Right. As I'm sure you can relate to. Yeah. But, <laughs> but like, but like, if you get cancer, he might be mm -hmm. one of them might be generous with you, but like, they're not on the hook. No, they're not on the hook. I mean, it's, gosh, there's a lot of things in this question. And so I'm going to try to kind of address each piece. Um, I First and foremost, yes, I myself, I'm financially independent. I don't want that to be construed as independently wealthy, um, no. because that's definitely not the case. <laughs> no. Uh, so no, there's, you know, like, I don't have a ton of like, real world financial entanglements with either of my partners. However, with each of my partners as part of like our monthly check-in discussion with each other, we do discuss money every single time. Um, because, you know, I mean, I have like Jace has, like me also has kind of a fluctuating income. Alex has more of a fixed income, but he makes significantly more than I do. And so uh, we're constantly checking in to, you know, to kind of make sure like, how is the money situation going along? Like, is there something like, you know, on this trip we're coming up with, like, does one of us need to pitch in more than the other? So like money is still a topic of discussion between us on a regular basis, even though we're not financially entwined. And so, okay, so there's that piece. The piece about possibly someday getting cancer or something like that. Um, so that's where a lot of people who are in non-traditional relationships or non-traditional families have really had to get creative. Um, and uh, there are actually a growing number of lawyers who work with people who are polyamorous the same way that they worked with communities who are queer, who also had to do things to kind of help protect themselves in the situation where the law or the government is not protecting them. Um, and so, for instance, like polyamorous families, like people who are raising kids together, sometimes they... Uh, 
people often form subchapter S corporations in order to financially protect themselves and protect their children uh, in the absence of anything that's comparable to like a marriage or parenting rights being available. Um, I've seen situations where, um, let's say there's a person who has two partners and he's married to one of the partners, but then his other partner gets sick and needs health insurance. And so a lawyer will work with them to like dissolve the existing marriage so that he can then marry the other partner because she needs health insurance, whereas the partner he was married to doesn't. And of course, this is all something that's done with like with everyone's consent and everything's above the board. Um, and so, you know, my, at least my personal take on it is this idea that like, you know, I don't have aspirations of getting married for a romantic purpose. If someday I get sick or my partners get sick, and if the tool in order to get financial support or health insurance, if the tool that's given to me is a marriage contract, then that's the tool that I'll use at that time. Right. Um, and that sounds to a lot of people very mercenary um, and like maybe a little bit too pragmatic. Um, but, you know, in the absence of there being a better tool, like, I, I don't know, honestly, like maybe if I was able to have a similar contract with multiple partners, I would, but I can't at this time outside of having multiple business contracts. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, so, and, so and that's, again, that's like, kind of my take on it. No, and, and that makes sense to me. I mean, but, but again, like people do have multiple business contracts with other people. Yes. And, and, and like that recognition is like that on some level, I have a limited partnership with you and a limited partnership with you and a limited partnership with you. And like, and ultimately like I myself am a, if not a free agent, like I myself, like I'm my primary, like I'm primarily looking after myself, like, or I'm primarily responsible for myself. Like I, mm. you know, and I'm responsible to, to the extent that we have this business contract, but like not mm. beyond that business contract. There's no such thing as an unlimited contract in which you enter into that basically goes like, I am now your total responsibility right. and you are my total right. responsibility, which is exactly yeah. what happened when I got married. Mm. That was mm -hmm. exactly what happened is it was like, it yeah. was like, you know, from now on, like, you know, I remember, I remember we had like separate checking or credit cards and my wife had, mm -hmm. had a big credit card debt when we got married. And when we were engaged, I was like, oh, listen, let me pay that off right now. And she's like, oh, you know, you can't do that. You know, it's not your responsibility. We're not married. I'm like, look, it, in, in, you know, in five weeks, it'll all be ours. Like, you know, like your, yeah. your debts uh -huh. are my debts and my, and my assets are your assets and, and they always will be. Um, and so for, for us, like we really did enter into one of those like unlimited partnership. Like there was no, there's no resource of mine that's off limits to her, um, yeah. which made it really simple when we had kids. Mm, of course. And, I, and that's where like, I would love to see that 25 year study. Cause like, I, I can't imagine that kids don't complicate this like crazy. Well, sure. I mean, kids complicate monogamous relationships also, <laughs> at least that's my impression from everyone that I've st spoken to who's in a monogamous marriage and has kids. They make them difficult. They don't complicate them. It's, it's, it's not, mm. it's really not that complicated. Like, you know, mm -hmm. if, if, if one of our kids gets sick, like mm -hmm. you go like, well, you know, Am, am I worried that my wife's going to be like taking some of our family resources and sending them in a different direction or some of her time and energy and going, no, no, like all hands on deck. Like, like, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I, I'm not, I don't have to, I don't, I don't have to want, like, like there's no question to where her ultimate loyalties lie. Right. And that's, that's where I go. Like, I just, I can't imagine raising kids without that. 
And, 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 and that's a failure of, I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying it's a failure of imagination on my part. Well, I think if I can ask to clarify, is that like, is your imagining that a parent would be torn between, do I take care of my kid or do I go hang out with this new romantic partner? Like, is that the kind of situation that you're imagining? I, yeah, it might, not, not so much that because like, you know, again, like even in a monogamous marriage, like you sort of like my kid wants to go to the movies, but you know, I haven't seen my husband in six weeks. So like we do, you know, you, 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 within a family, you do that. But the difference is, is that in a sense, it, it, I, there's no one outside of our nuclear family that mm -hmm. can lay any claim on, on my wife or I that, that we, that, that isn't trumped by our kids. Sure. Sure. But I mean, I think that's the same thing with a single parent as well, you know, that that's, I mean, that's provided someone's being a good parent, right? There's plenty of bad parents out there who like don't prioritize their children. But, but I think that's the thing is like, there's a part of being a parent that is like, you know, your kids are the most important, right? And so, you know, at least what I've seen in the people but that I know my personally. What if my partner's kids have needs? What if my partner has a need? What if my partner's sick and needs to move to Florida because of the climate and mm -hmm. my kids are in Minnesota? Like who, who, like, where does my, where, what, what do I do? I, I, I guess, I, okay, sorry, that kind of threw me for a loop because now I'm kind of confused on what the actual like scenario is that you're presenting. Is it that like your partner, so it sounds like the scenario you're presenting is that your partner has kids that are not your kids in this scenario? Well, yeah, like well, I, I could conceive a, I could conceive of people having part having kids with different partners. Yeah, sure, definitely. And people, I, I mean, people I could, do that now in monogamous marriages because we, right. as you can see, at least in my generation, like blended families all over the place, right? Where you have stepdads and stepmoms and and stepchildren and stepbrothers and stepsisters. You know that people do have to figure out their priorities, right? I mean, this is the thing is that like figuring out priority, especially when kids are involved is not something that's new, especially as we've seen with people no, who have right. kids you're and right. then and then have a divorce and then remarry someone else and have kids with them. And it doesn't mean that like the new kids suddenly trump the old kids or vice versa, like the person still has to take care of their kids, right? Um, right. But the weird thing you know, is, is like people, people do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but the idea of plan, like they don't plan for it, like they don't they don't opt sure. for it. Like it's 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 a response to failure. Hmm. Interesting. People plan. They get married and they have kids together. And like we're going to raise our kids, and then they get divorced. Yeah. Like and then they go like, oh, girl, what, what's the best we can do here? Um, and and typically, I think it's like like and the social convention, whether it's true or not, is is that. It's not generally in, like it's not generally in the kid's best interest. I, I you know like most people go like ideally you, you you know you got both your parents right there that would that sure. would make it easier. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's simpler yeah. economically. It's simpler. Yeah. Um, you know like that. You know the, the, and so and so I understand that people fail to to be able to to to, to keep their commitments and then you have to do the best you can. Mm -hmm. the, the weird thing about the whole polyamory thing is, is sort of people going like, no, 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 this is actually, this is not a failure. Like we're going to set out, we're going to set it up this way so that I'm going to, I'm going to have multiple relationships. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of go like, is that really going to work out for raising kids? Well, I mean, the research shows that like kids who are raised in polyamorous families are actually in pretty good shape. Um, and the thing is like, I want to clarify also that there's a lot of different 
shapes to this. There's a lot of different formats it can take. Like it could be, you know, a, you know, a a mom and dad living together, but both of them have partners outside of the house, or it could be mom and dad, you know, mom has a girlfriend who also takes part in uh, the child rearing process, or it could be that we have multiple adults. And I mean, goodness sake, like when I was presenting just this year at conferences, I, I met a a family group of, I would, gosh, I think it was like six adults or so. And they weren't all involved with each other, but there was like some cross-pollination of of relationships. All of them had kids and they were buying a home together, a freaking gigantic home. They were like an intentional community. Yes. Yes. Like an intentional community. And so the thing is that like, at least what the research shows is when you have kids in that context, like basically the thing is that like when you have kids who are surrounded by loving adults who are taking care of them, the kids tend to turn out okay. The same way that we saw the research with uh, parents who were gay, for instance, that it was like, no, it's not, it doesn't boil down to that a kid needs a mom and a dad. It boils down to that a kid needs multiple loving adults in their life. And that goes the same as if it's living with mom and dad, if it's mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, if it's mom and dad and dad's boyfriend also, if it's mom and dad and aunts and uncles and, and you know, living with close family the way that a lot of communities have done for hundreds of years that, you know, we have this old adage about how it takes a village to raise a child. And the thing is that that's very much true. And so that's how the research has shown that like generally because the fact yeah, but, but- that these kids tend to have multiple loving adults in their life, um, there's more resources of attention, there's more financial resources, and that the kids tend to turn out pretty well. I buy that to a point. And, the, and, and I guess the point, the, the point is like, I buy that to a point when the kids are charming and cute and the adults are loving and healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen a lot of situations with like kids that are born that have huge needs or that are really yeah. difficult or like when the, and, and my experience has been that the biological connection, you know, like, and it's like, like in all species, mm-hmm. that, that like genes have this, like they're self, what Dawkins called them the selfish genes, like they look after themselves. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's why people tend to be really loyal to their blood and they, and to make sacrifices for their blood that they wouldn't make for a kid that they love. And, and, and care for it. And you go like, but I saw that movie where, you know, and it was the same. And I go like, yeah, I like, you know, it can be the same, but when the chips are down sometimes, or when the kid's autistic or special needs, mm-hmm. then a lot of times, even the biological parents go AWOL, but, but certainly the non-biological parents, you know, the, the, the caregivers, like when the chips are down, it's, it's a different ball game when it's your kid and when it's your neighbor's kid. Sure. I mean, I, I think though that this is the same argument that's been used against same-sex parents adopting is that there's not that biological connection there. And so there's no way that these parents who happen to be lesbian or gay can actually care for their kid when the chips are down. Um, And so like, that's, I think that's where it starts to get a little bit tricky because I mean, by that same reasoning, then, you know, uh, a kid who has needs or who is autistic could never be adopted. Right. If we're kind of assuming that, only the biological connection to one's genes is what drives being able to care for a child. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah you're right. No, no, but what, what I hear you saying is, is that in some ways, some of these, and I don't want to call them alternatives, or maybe they are, you know, like these different ways of doing relationships, mm-hmm. 
force people to be more conscious about developing that kind of ability, the ability yeah. to connect with somebody else's kid or the ability to, to, to invest yourself in a relationship that, that maybe isn't even yours. Like where you go like, I love you, Dedeker, and you love, you know, Alex. And so I need to care about what happens to Alex because it influences your life. And I care about, yeah. you know, and so like I start, yeah. you know, I'm assuming that Jason and Alex not only know about each other, but on some level are rooting for each other. Oh, yeah. I mean, for my birthday last year, they coordinated secretly behind my back to fly Alex to Tokyo so that I could see him on my birthday. Um, and I mean, they, uh, you know, it's funny, like their relationship is like, they're not like best friends or anything. And, and they're not romantically involved. But yeah, you know, they're they're definitely on the same team. <laughs> um, and there's definitely something that I kind of try to bring as well to like when my partners have other partners as well is, is and I think that you really hit the nail on the head there with just kind of reevaluating the way that we relate to each other. Um, yeah, to a certain extent. The other thing is, I guess, there, it, it, we have no data on how polyamorous relationships would play out in a culture that thought polyamorous relationships were fine. Yeah. I mean, like I, we kind of only have like, uh, you know, anthropological and, and anecdotal data, you know, like a lot of the stuff that they talked about in sex at dawn. Um, right. But, but that is, that is funny that you bring that up because I would say, you know, you know, a lot of people bring up, oh, like polyamory sounds really hard. It sounds really complicated. How do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? And the thing is that now that I've been working with clients for a number of years, and now that I've actually gotten like more day-to-day -day exposure to like what people actually struggle with on a personal level, um, the majority of it, like the majority of it, I think has to do with that, with trying to do something that's outside the box in a culture that really wants to put relationships inside a box you know, um, that a lot of it comes from that. A lot of it comes from having to find new ways to communicate, having to find new words, having to find new ways to describe to your parents, your two relationships with your two girlfriends or, or whatever it is, you know, that like, that's what a lot of people struggle or sending, with. Yeah. Sending your kids to school and having the yes. teacher say, yes, you know, who yes. do you live with? Or, exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. But then that's, but that's, that's the same thing that like the queer community has and the trans community has struggled with for years as well is, you know, when your identity, your way of living is outside the realm of what's considered normal or typical, like, of course, there's going to be resistance. Of course, it's going to be difficult. Does that mean you shouldn't do it? You know, if you feel like you're gay, but should you not do it because it's going to be difficult? Um, you know, that obviously that kind of depends on like on context for a certain person and, yeah, and safety. Just say, and, maybe, and safety. Maybe. So it definitely yeah. comes down to safety. Um, but at least in principle, um, you know, just because what you're doing is against the grain doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be abandoned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's because, I mean, it's funny. Sometimes people, when it comes, I, I deal with a lot of people. I have a lot of people that are sort of transitioning out of religion. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes somebody will come and they'll sort of describe their family and their marriage and their kids and their situation. And they're sort of, they're, they're questioning the Christianity. They're, 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 you know, they can't be fundamentalist anymore. And they're like, and I'm like, listen, let me show you. Like, I've got these friends who are really progressive Christians. And like, it's not really supernatural. They just kind of use Christian language to describe reality. And mm -hmm. like, there's a way that you, and they're like, why are you trying to help me stay a Christian? I'm like, dude, look <laughs> at your life. Like, you'll be way better off uh -huh. if you can say some kind of Christian because, mm -hmm. and, and you sort of go like, but should you stay a Christian just because like, it will make your life 
a lot easier. And I go like, it depends on how strong yeah. you are or, yeah. or how much you need these people or what your finances are. Like, it's not always a, right. you know, and, and so you, you see, so sometimes the answer is, yeah, sometimes you do. You have to, you have to kind of, um, you have to try to accommodate yourself to what you're capable of doing. Right. Right. Live in the realm of the, of the, of the possible. You, of course, have been able to forge a lifestyle in which you're able to do, you're able to live out your, I, I don't know if you would call them convictions or if you would just call them your desires. Uh, maybe values. Let's try on that word. Oh, that's a good <laughs> word. I like that word. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally right. That's a great way of saying it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you, so you're, you're able to kind of pursue the things that are the most important to you. Yeah. And I, I honestly, at this point, like I can't, I can't think of doing anything else. You know, I, I mean, I can't, you know, it's the same thing. We don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. We don't know what's going to happen in 30 years. You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know the things that I, I value and what my principles are. And, you know, I can say at least for myself, you know, I can't speak for anyone else, but at least for myself that, you know, 10 years ago or so when I finally decided to take ownership of this as something that I wanted for my life and for my relationships, um, you know, that was a turning point and, and there's no going back after that. And the last 10 years has presented its own unique set of challenges and sorrows and also incredible joy and incredible love and trust and all of those things. But I, you know, I, I could never imagine going back and choosing not to honestly. Um, that's but so that's, but that's just me. <laughs> that's just me. Yeah. No, no. Cause I, I have a friend who I have a couple of friends who, you know, kind of opened their marriage up. Um, and, uh, and they did that for a few years mm -hmm. and it, they, they would say it was a good experience for them. And then they got to a place where they looked at each other and they were sort of like, you know, the more we've done this, the more we sort of realize what sort of our ultimate values are. And mm. actually like, you want to, you want to go back to, you want to, you know, shut that stuff down, and mm. and and, and they're like, yeah, let's, yeah, that was great. Let's let now, you know. And so they really did sort of go back, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but not go back out of because they got burned, right? Um, but I imagine they, they, there's they, there's for them there's no going back to like unlearning the lessons that they learned, right? That's right. Through that experience, right. you right. know, it's yeah, it's maybe we're going to go back to the format that we had at the beginning, but I imagine there's probably not a sense of going back as though that never happened. No, no. Yeah. And, you know, and even, even my, Marty and I, my wife and I, you know, who read all these books and had all these conversations and, and there was a real openness to our conversation. And, uh, and, you know, and you say like, but on, on, like, I, I saw y'all last night at that concert, you, you look exactly like you were and you do think you live in the same, and I go like, I know it's different though. Hmm. Just even for having had the conversation openly. Yeah. For like talking about like, hey, this is no moral thing. Like, but what do you think? Oh, this is kind of what I value. This is what I value. You know what? This is probably the best way for us to pursue these values. Yeah. Um, that was, that changed our relationship. Hmm. And we can't go back to having not had those conversations and realizing those things about the other person. And so, right. um, you know, so, I mean, sometimes people, so, you know, and I think a lot of people might be going like, Hey, you know, this, you do these podcasts about trying to like make the most of your life. And like, yeah, what percentage of your audience is really going to dabble in polyamory? Mm -hmm. But there's something about even just having a conversation 
Oh yeah. In which you talk about things in terms of their in terms of their impact and their effect rather than in terms of their whether they are allowed or not allowed. And you go like, what if everything is allowed and we start talking about what's good for me? Yes, yes. I mean, I definitely, you know, I encourage people you know, people who definitely, you know, are monogamous and feel convicted about wanting to be monogamous. Um, again, yeah, to still even have those conversations, you know, have those conversations with your partner of how do we feel about like what happens if one of us is attracted to someone else? Can we talk to each other about feeling attracted to someone else? And that's an okay conversation to have. Can we talk to each other about what counts as monogamy or what counts as cheating. That I feel is a fundamental conversation that we don't have in our monogamous relationships because actually everyone has a different definition of what cheating is. You know, some people think my partner looking at pornography is cheating. Some people think uh, my partner making out with someone at a party when they're on a business trip, mm, I'm fine with that. That's not cheating. You know, everyone has a different definition. And so I think that's what brings me back to like really encouraging people into conscious monogamy is, you know, don't don't take anything yeah. for granted here. Have these conversations, even if they're uncomfortable, you know? I, I jokingly call that the Esther Perel conversation. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, her book, uh, what was it called? Uh, Mating in Captivity. Yes. And I know she has a new one out too. It's about uh, affairs. Yeah. Um, her podcast is fantastic. Oh, I've heard that that's really oh, good. wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 like, the thing is, like, what I feel like she's brilliant at is sort of saying, you know that marriage is under a tr like a traditional marriage is a is a really hard thing to pull off, mm -hmm. and it becomes infinitely harder if we don't have conscious conversations about what are all the things that this relationship is required to do, yes. and it, are, is there a way to take some pressure off of it, and is there a way to be honest about some of the things that we're trading in terms of security and trading that off for. Um, you know, kind of excitement and and novelty, right. and 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 sort of like sometimes even if you just do the calculation, you end up making the same decision, right? But but you make it in a way where you go like, you know what? I feel good. I feel much better about this decision because it was a decision rather yes. than you know, a fait accompli. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. Yes. Hey, right. speaking of podcasts, listen. Like, first of all, this, this is great. This is, I'm, I'm taking way too much of your time and I'm going <laughs> to cut this off. Um, um, and, and, and like, I, I, like, it's funny cause I've heard you, I heard you on a couple of other shows and I thought like those other people were probably way better at talking with you than I was. Um, <laughs> no, um, it's fine. But, but, but this, but this is like, I, you know, this is really helpful to me. Oh, good, um, good. This, this, and so like, yeah, I don't know if it'll help anyone in my audience. I don't know, like it, it's probably boring to you, but like it was really <laughs> helpful to me. All right, my sister. I, 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 I hope our paths will cross again. But yes, I, I, me I, too. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, so enjoyed it. All right, then. That was my conversation with Dedeker Winston. And... I want to know what you think of it. I hope I haven't upset or alienated everybody. I mean, it would be great if I hadn't upset or alienated anybody, but that never happens. But whatever you're thinking, positive, negative, what, if, you, if you thought I was too hard on her, or too judgmental, too soft, or not push, didn't push issues enough, whatever you're thinking, I want to hear it. Write to me. You know where to find me. Bartcampolo.com. O-R-G. 
Um, and if you, boy, the Facebook page should be amazing this time. And, and you know, I, I promised you a surprise at the end of this episode and here it comes. Uh, I got an email from a listener, Steve Bierce, who also happens to be a member of the band Stars from Streetlights. And if, you, if you're not familiar with Stars from Streetlights, it may be that you aren't following the Canadian pop music scene closely enough. Because these guys have been around for a while, since 2009. They are from Lethbridge, Alberta. I know. There's New York City, there's Los Angeles, and there's Lethbridge. Everybody knows those are the, that's kind of the, the, the Bermuda Triangle of pop music. But these, these guys are actually quite lovely. And two of them are deconverted Christians like me. And Steve wrote and introduced me to this song. And I ended up hearing then from, from Austrian um, who wrote the song, Austrian Graf. And she, she said that the song was born out of the freedom that came from finally admitting their unbelief. And it folk, she said, we just wanted to focus on living for today instead of living for the afterlife and of embracing the here and now instead of fearing hell. And I love this. She said, she, one of the lines I remember was she said, ultimately it's a song about hope and life and freedom and the grace that we give ourselves. I love that phrase. It's about grace, the grace that we give ourselves. And I hope you're giving yourself some grace out there. And uh, I hope you like the song. I'm going to send you out with it. And we'll catch you next time on Humanize Me. Here it is, Heathen by Stars from Streetlights. They say you'll feel lost once you've lost your way, but they're just afraid of what it means to be free of a hell that waits so patiently.
For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. To leave a question in your own voice to be used in future shows, call the Humanize Me Q line at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. Humanize Me is a production of Jax Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.